0: The one praise the, the darkness with a light. <laughs> light. Praise the one who the, the, darkness darkness the light. Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most well-known sections for the Lutheran Church, and we'll see that As we read through the text today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'll argue it's the first half of the text. I mean, it's only two paragraphs here, but the first half is the one that's best known among the Lutherans. So let's go ahead and take a look. Really it's verses 8 and 9, but we're going to see the whole thing. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. I'm just going to pause there. We live in a Christian church today, you know, the whole of Christianity, where by and large, much of the church thinks that you can actually choose to believe in Jesus, that you can accept Jesus, that you can let Jesus into your heart. That's not the way salvation works. It's not the way our faith works. And and this is one of the places to turn for that idea. How many dead people do you know that can do something to help themselves? I don't know any. Our state of being, when we are separated from God, is dead. I know, that's not the way the world looks at it, right? You know, we, we have... Nearly 8 billion people walking around on the planet right now, and the majority of them are already dead. And that's why the urgency of the Christian message, the gospel of Jesus, exists, because they need to hear of life. as they currently don't have it. And if something doesn't change, they will never have it. The old... Jesus is knocking at the door, you just have to let him in idea. I mean, if that's the case, we're laying inside the house dead. Jesus has to break the door down to rescue us. I guess it's Jesus. He could just uh, appear in the house without breaking the door down because he's done that before. The risen Jesus is not bound by space and time. So that's something important to notice and recognize is that we cannot, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has enlightened us by the gospel. Verse 2 Those sins that killed us, we once walked in those, following the course of this world. I'm going to pause right there. A question to discuss with your kids. Why do we still insist on walking the course of the world? Talk about the ways that your family is doing it. Talk about the ways that your children do it. Admit yourself to your kids, the ways that you walk like the world. This is one of the things that Jesus very specifically told his disciples, that their lives are not to be... Worldly. And Jesus prays in John 17, the high priestly prayer, that the world hates them because they're not of the world, just as he is not of the world. In Matthew, I think it's chapter 10, says it a couple of times. He, he tells his disciples, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, but whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. If you want to live the world's way, you can. That's up to you. But it doesn't end well. The warning is there throughout the New Testament and the Old. It's there over and over again. Sin leads to death. The ways of this world, this, the ways of this society, the, the structures that we build, the civilizations that we build, uh, the peer groups that we try to form everywhere... These things only lead to death. And yet we cling to them over and over and over and over and over and over over again. So repent. Luther said that our life must be daily a life of repentance. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to the devil. So if you're following the ways of the world, you're following Satan. That's pretty bluntly said. Right there. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So all of those who don't believe in Jesus, sons of disobedience, are following the devil's ways and his spirit is the spirit that is at work in them rather than the spirit of the Lord. Sharply different. Verse 3, we used to live among them in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is why you should never advise your children to follow their heart, ever. There's a great little comic strip that was written a few years back. Um, Adam Ford is the artist's name. He's got links to the Babylon Bee and, and things like that. Adam, the number four, the letter D, Adam4D.com is where the comics used to be. I think they're still there. And he had one on this idea. A little boy asks his mom a question about what he should do. And the mom just says, oh, you know, sweetie, follow your heart. And then it cuts to another little comic strip. Well, then the next box, the next cell of the strip. And you see a picture of a like a grotesque-looking heart dark and angry, vicious-looking little thing. It's a heart that's personified, right? It's got arms and legs, and it can speak. I think it has teeth, you can even see. And it yells, sin! Because that's what our heart desires all the time. So we don't follow our hearts. That's the passion of the flesh, the carrying out of the desires of the body and the mind. We were, in that, we were by nature children of wrath. And the scriptures teach that begins at conception. We have been broken from the moment God created us. Not because of him, but because of us. We chose to rebel against him. And as little ones, we are conceived in that rebellion. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy, which reflects chapter 1, where we talked about how he's continuously pouring out his gifts upon us so that they overflow and we cannot keep them in. Out of his great love for us, he loved us even when we were dead. Even when we were rebel scum, he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us from death. Notice, notice how Paul talks about these things as though they already are. He has already made you alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he has already raised you up with him. He has already seated you with him in the heavenly places. How incredible is that? Here we are, lugging around in this world, still trying to figure out if we really want to be with God or if we'd rather go about sinning some more. And the promise of God is he has already raised us up. He has already seated us in his heavenly throne room in Christ. Those promises are real, they are true, and they are for you and for your children. In verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness for us in Christ Jesus. So chapter 1, all those gifts that we saw, how much mercy God has and how he pours it all out continuously upon us, that's not good enough for him, right? It should be more than good enough for us. It isn't because of our sinfulness. but, But for him, it's not good enough. He has more to give. So that in the coming ages, referring to our time in paradise, he might show his immeasurable riches of grace. How incredible to think about everything God has done for you, how he's created you, loved you, cared for you, provided for you. Everything you have in this life comes from him, and that's not enough. He wants to give you more. And he will in paradise. That's pretty profound to think about. And that brings us to what we jokingly call the Lutheran verse. Verses 8 and 9, so it's two verses. But coming out of the Reformation, coming out of an era of church history where the church essentially was teaching that you could buy your salvation, they would deny that, but if you say that you can buy your forgiveness, you can actually pay for an indulgence, pay money to earn forgiveness, pay money to earn... um, Essentially, time off for your relative in purgatory. Yeah, you're buying salvation. And so coming out of that teaching, to see verses 8 and 9, you can understand why they were the Lutheran verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace means gift. You are saved as a gift. And it is faith that receives that. The Spirit creates faith. We receive it. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Pretty clear, right? It's a gift, not a work. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. God gives it. The second that you have to earn it, it's no longer a gift, it's payment. Salvation and paradise are not a paycheck to be earned, they're a gift. That God has freely and wondrously given. And then it's all done here so that, verse 9, no one may boast. Boasting is pride, boasting is sin. We don't boast about our salvation, not as our own doing. We do boast about our salvation because we boast about Jesus. That's our boast that's the one thing that the scriptures tell us it is good to have pride in, is God. Now, Lutherans often leave off verse 10 when they talk about it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not It's not that we don't value works. It's not that... We say you should just do whatever you want to do in this life. That's not even true. That sounds nothing like Jesus speaking. We teach that it is not your works that save you. It is a gift that you are saved. And now because you have received such a gift, we are changed. We, we no longer act the same way. We no longer walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the air. We no longer live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, whereby we were children of wrath. No, instead we now live as his workmanship, doing the good works that he has prepared beforehand. We have been given the task of bearing fruit, and so we bear fruit. It's what we're called to do. That fruitfulness is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. And as saved children of God, we enjoy going about the work of the family, the work of the kingdom. All right, that's the first paragraph. The second paragraph we don't get to spend as much time on since we've already spent most of our time today on the first. And this is probably less talked about, but you see the overall theme of the letter coming through again and again here in this paragraph. Paul is going to talk about the difference of Jew and Gentile here, he gets away with it without even saying the word Jew, doesn't he? He does say Gentiles right there in the opening of the section, verse 11. They were the uncircumcision. So they were looked down on by many of the Jews for not being circumcised, for not following the Old Testament law of God. And so verse 12, they were at that time separated from God, from Christ. They were not part of Israel. They were strangers to the covenant, the Old Testament. They had no hope. They were not part with God. But in Christ, this is no longer true. In Christ, he has brought to himself all people. Jesus, as he's doing his ministry, and I should have looked this one up, but Jesus ends up talking about, it's probably John 10, as he talks about being the good shepherd. He tells his disciples that there are other sheep that are not of this sheepfold, and he must go and call them also. They will hear his voice, and they will be one sheep, one sheep, one flock, with one shepherd. He must gather them also. That's a reference to the Gentiles. Christ has not come just for one group of people. He came for all. He came to die on the cross, to shed his blood, right having been brought near by the blood of Christ. He did this for all. He is our peace. He made us both won. He broke down that hostility between people by his death, by his, his resurrection, by the Lord's Supper. There are no standing differences between Christians. Paul rips into the Corinthians because they allowed social standing, rich and poor, to divide them. He rips into Peter for allowing that circumcision thing to divide him from the Galatian, while well, the the Gentile Christians, he talks about it in Galatians. There's no division, division in the church. We are united, one body, because of Christ. We are a new man, in the place of two. And that's really a kind of a, could be a twofold reference there, there in verse 15 that he might create in himself one new man in place of two you could look at that as jew and gentile you might also be able to look at it as God and man that he has reconciled us verse 16 to us into one body he is the head we are the body we are the very body of christ so he preached peace to all people far off, Gentiles, near, Jews. And through him, both of us, Jew and Gentile, have access to God through his Spirit. No longer strangers, no longer aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're part of God's family. We are citizens not of our other countries. Your citizenship in Rome does not matter. Your citizenship in the United States does not matter. You are citizens of a better country. This is Jesus before Pilate saying, My kingdom is not of this world. And that is so very true. We do not hang our hats at the end of the day on this country, hoping and, and praying that this country will save us, because it can't. And if we hope that it will, we are lost. Our hope is in Christ which is a very different thing and it is a hope that cannot be taken away from us it is a hope that is built on the foundation of the Apostles and the prophets that would be New Testament and Old Testament and Christ himself is the cornerstone he is the rock upon which our hope is built the whole rest of the structure the whole rest of the body that is the church is built on him he is that foundation And we are grown into a holy temple in the Lord. That is the body of Christ. It is the church. It is the bride of Christ. We are his. The temple of the Lord is where he is present. Jesus is present in his church. He is present in his bride. He is present in his body, which is us. And so we are being built together as the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in us. And he continues to pour out his gifts upon us in word and sacrament. Here you can talk to your children if you'd like to wrap up the text with a conversation around being a body. Think of your own body and how it works. If your hand was not attached to your body, you know, if it was just laying on the other side of the room, you don't have to do this grossly, but it's just laying over there. Would it work? The fingers would not work. If your eyes were not in your head, you would not be able to see. You have to be attached. You have to be part of the body to work. And we are the body of Christ. So remain in the body. Remain with Jesus as your head. Abide in Christ. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ your